Hello, everyone. You've reached another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week, we're going to dive into the news that uh, Tesla, according to Elon Musk, is very close to level five automation in their vehicles, something they have continuously pushed towards. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the state of social media, looking at news this week that uh, Twitter is exploring a subscription service. And uh, we'll close out with a look at some of the preliminary benchmarks on Apple's silicon and uh, some other chip stuff. Uh, so with that, Ross, let's jump into uh, all things automation. And of course, Tesla is not the only story out there. Last week, Amazon bought uh, Zooks for uh, a bit over a, a billion dollars as they quickly acquire self-automation and, and autonomous vehicle technology and, and IP. So clearly, uh, there's a kind of an arms race going on here as everyone's competing to to uh, be at level five quickly, but also safely. And at the same time, you have a lot of competitors in the space right now. You have a lot of tech companies, you have a lot of traditional auto manufacturers. Everyone is, uh, is trying to get there. And so you, it, it looks like uh, probably some of these companies are running low on cash. That looks like the story with Zooks at least. It was a, probably a great time for them to sell to Amazon. And Amazon with uh, a very big treasure chest is happy to come in and buy assets like that to help quickly build out uh, what they might want in the future. So I think Amazon has uh, a lot of potential applications for the Zooks technology. Probably the most straightforward one is that, of course, they have their own delivery fleet now, and uh, this would clearly make sense for them to find a way to have those trucks run their own routes. Uh, but they're doing a lot of other things in terms of autonomous robotic kinds of uh, products as well. Experimenting with drones, of course, experimenting with delivery bots that can uh, propel themselves around a neighborhood and drop off boxes. Uh, particularly interesting in this COVID era where so many companies are touting no touch or contactless uh, delivery options. Um, there's probably some core technology there that could uh, apply. But I, I think that uh, beyond, I, I think there are things that might even be more relevant to their core service offerings. Uh, many observers of the auto industry believe that the future of the industry is not selling consumers cars, but offering uh, ride on demand type services. That's clearly what Uber's interest in the space is all about. Uh, and of course, a uh, few companies have, as you've mentioned, Sean, a, a few times, done as good a job pivoting from one service to the next as Amazon. So perhaps a future Prime subscription could include a certain number of, um, of you know, a certain number of, of lifts per month uh, from the, the Amazon fleet, uh, or perhaps they could even do things like uh, driving you to the nearest Whole Foods uh, when you, uh, you need to pick up some, uh, some groceries uh, and, and no deliveries are, are available, as has been the case during the, the epidemic. 
Well, it's, it's been really interesting to me to see how Amazon's business has evolved because they really mm-hmm. started with a very global perspective. And if you think back to uh, er, the early days when they didn't want to build distribution centers everywhere because they didn't want to create nexus, they were trying to avoid collecting tax and they, they used that right. to advantage for, for a long time. They were a cost leader because uh, for, for the most part, they weren't paying six to eight percent sales tax in in places probably where you are in new york it's probably even higher than that uh and then when they started to kind of move away from that they quickly went local so they went from this very decent you know kind of very centralized model i guess to a very decentralized model where they were building distribution centers very close and trying to drive you know within the hour, within the two hour delivery, they bought Whole Foods. That to me is a more local play. And this feels in line with that. It feels like they, they've spent a lot of the time building the infrastructure. That was the, the early story of Amazon. Obviously AWS comes out of that. Their supply chain management comes out of that. And now they're really focused on delivering local services. And so this really will, I think, open up opportunity for them and and lots of spaces it definitely makes them a potential service provider like you you mentioned they could easily get into uh, providing self-driving vehicles as a service or it could drive into their uh, no no pun intended there drive into their uh, you know delivery vehicles and, and I think mm-hmm. we saw other news this week obviously on that with uh, the, the acquisition of postmates or the, at least the announcement of Uber buying Postmates for $2.65 billion in an all-stock deal. They're clearly trying to build out that local distribution and, uh, and kind of supply chain dynamic. Postmates, I would argue, is, is done a lot around their API, really making it a, a core piece of that uh, delivery business. So we'll see if Amazon goes that same direction, being able to deliver not only the packages that you're getting over over their uh, traditional services, but also delivering food and, and meals and other things like that. I mean, I've always felt like the, uh, the real promise of delivery, grocery delivery, food delivery, isn't in somebody's 1999 Honda Accord, but uh, a, a delivery vehicle that's purpose made to keep food cold or to keep food hot. And that feels to me like uh, an autonomous vehicle, maybe a small autonomous vehicle, as opposed to uh, a car on the road, but maybe something on a sidewalk or- Or something that could deploy some kind of delivery robot. Um, Sure. You know, and and then you look at uh, Elon Musk's claim that uh, Tesla is is getting close to level five autonomy, which- uh, for anyone unfamiliar, is the the highest level of vehicle autonomy. It means that essentially you can rip out the um, uh, rip out the steering wheel and the brakes, and there's just no human interaction whatsoever. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it's sort of an interesting claim by him uh, because their so-called self-driving modes have uh, not not been. Uh, Super effective uh, up to this point, but um, uh, but but it's important to realize that he's making the claim that he feels like the core of it should be ready. Uh, I think maybe by the end of this year, 
And, and this is kind of the story of self-driving cars is that it always seems that as you get closer and closer to 100%, you know, it, it, it's, it's just like, it, you know, that, that those last few percentages prove very, very elusive. And, and you need to have that um, for, uh, for public uh, credibility. And so in some respects, you know, uh, even, even if you have this level five autonomy, and we don't really know if, if he will or when he will, uh, you know, the, the, the regulatory environment has to catch up with it. You know, the public acceptance has to catch up with it. Um, I think that's an excellent chance, even though, uh, you know, despite what I just said about, you know, parts of it being elusive, that the technology will be there before, before uh, local governments, municipalities are comfortable with the idea of authorizing these, um, these vehicles for a, a wide range of um, wide range of, of specialized tasks, much less the kind of general driving uh, by by consumer vehicles that would be Tesla's interest. You know, I, I almost feel like a company like Amazon or maybe Uber has uh, you know has has a better chance of getting limited approval. For self-driving vehicles before a, a mainstream car manufacturer would, so well, or because even there are someone, more constraints, right? I'm even, sorry. Even somebody like Too Simple that's doing truck autonomy, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's where it, the use case scenarios probably make more sense. But to your point, even a, a generalized driving experience in a passenger vehicle is a very specialized service in certain circumstances. Uh, you know, a heavy snowstorm all of a sudden is a very, very difficult environment for level five autonomy to, mm-hmm. and that is essentially what, what we're saying with level five autonomy is that not only can it drive everywhere, but it can do so in any condition. And so it's mm-hmm. going to have redundant features, redundant systems so that it can, uh, you know, essentially level five doesn't require steering wheels. And right. so- You've got to get to a point where you can drive that vehicle in any any situation, and we know that uh, that's a pretty demanding requirement given changing in weather, change in road conditions, all, all different kinds of other factors that uh, will make it very very difficult. And and uh, you know, it, it's almost impossible to test it everywhere and in every condition, uh, and so. It will require a lot of live testing. I think Tesla is okay with that. I think Elon Musk is okay with that. But to your point, I don't know that regulators will ever get comfortable <laughs> with that. Well, uh, at some point, you don't really have a choice. And at some point, you have to acknowledge that, unfortunately, there will be, you know, we've seen it already, but it's going to continue. There are going to be accidents and deaths that involve self-driving cars, Uh and so, you know, you, you see one of these incidents and people freak out um, because it's new and unfamiliar. And, and it's a huge public education challenge because, uh, you know, the, the, it, it's like the old joke about running from the tiger. You know, you, you don't have to run, you don't have to outrun the tiger, just have to outrun, you know, your friend who's, who's yeah. trying to run from the tiger, right? So, so the standard isn't that, 
you know, the vehicle will never be involved uh, in, a, in a crash, uh, you know, which, uh, which, which, which is a, a, you know, very difficult standard to meet. You just have to show that it's going to be overall much safer than having humans driving um, in, in a, a same situation. I mean, maybe what it comes down to is trying to show that, trying to show data that in the instances, and of course, you're also gonna have mixed environments for many years where you have self-driving cars mixing with human-driven cars, and chances are the humans will cause more of the accidents in, in, in that scenario. But, but I think one possibility is that the cars, you know, the incidents in which the, the cars do get into accidents, you're gonna to have to show that no human could have avoided uh, an accident in that scenario. It's like, you know, the car, the, the tree just fell in front, you know, and there was no time to react. And, and that's why the crash happened or something like that. Though I'm not sure that will ever be the case. I, I mean, early on, I think you will ha you're going to trade one accident for the other. So if you look at the accidents mm -hmm. that have happened thus far, uh, the Tesla accident in Florida, the Uber accident in Arizona, and, and even the what I consider the very first accident caused by a self-driving vehicle was a, a Google car at the time, now Waymo, obviously. Mm. When it was merging into a lane, it's it ended up being sideswiped by a bus. And, uh, and the argument was that um, the software didn't realize that you really needed to give way to larger vehicles even when you had the right of way. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. so that's a... Uh, you know, that's an accident that might have been prevented by a human driver. They might have seen a bus coming and decided, oh, I'll just I'll just wait uh, rather than try to merge here. Uh, the other accidents that happened in, um, you know, in Florida with the Tesla might have easily been uh, averted by a, a human driver. So at some level, probably early on, we're going to be trading one type of accident for another, you hope that the net result is fewer accidents, fewer deaths, fewer injuries, less damage. Uh, but, but early on, I think it will be tough to decipher when you're, when it, it's hard to measure that null case where no accident happened and, and you don't really measure it, you can't measure it. But, but I think even where the technology is today, that is assumed, you know, that once, once you have self-driving cars on the road, they will be so much safer than human drivers for a variety of reasons that, you know, people are saying it's, it's going to be the end of car insurance companies uh, because the rate of, of accidents will be so low uh, that, um, you know, there's no way they're going to be able to get the, the uh, justify the kinds of premiums that, that they charge today. You know, the accidents will be so rare and of course over time you know increasingly rare not only as more self-driving cars get on the road but as the technology improves uh you know another thing with um self-driving cars is that it's not just about the technology in the car itself uh but uh, as we move to 5g there there are standards in the works that are going to allow cars to communicate with each other uh, probably in a much uh, more efficient means than humans could uh, could react to. So, 
So even in that instance that I mentioned where the tree falls, right? Um, in the future, there, there may be a sensor on that tree uh, that indicates to oncoming cars, hey, you know, the wind is blowing and, you know, there's X percent chance that the tree may fall. So you may want to start applying the brakes. Well, and there definitely could be sensors built into the road, if not on the actual tree. Absolutely. So, so you yeah. have vehicle to infrastructure and, and arguably some of those sensors might already exist, not necessarily built into the road, but you've got cameras everywhere and those sure. cameras are going to pick up that type of uh, that type of change in the environment, whatever that change is. So, and in fact, there was a press release this week uh, by a consortium working on that kind of technology, Qualcomm, Ericsson, you know, uh, Auto Guys, uh, you know, essentially saying that they've started to do tests and it's very promising. So, there you go. Well, so uh, Elon saying he remains confident that we will have the basic functionality for Level Five Autonomy complete this year. Uh, right. Elon, you've got about six months. We uh, <laughs> will be waiting. Uh, moving there'll on be, to our next. There'll be a, be a lot of time to troll the SEC uh, in, in the next six months. So. That's that's right. Uh, moving on to our next story, uh, the state of social media. We've had uh, rumors, it looks like, that uh, Twitter is exploring a subscription service. They had a job posting that mentioned it. They then scrubbed the job posting. They then, they then uh, put the job posting back up, realizing that the internet never forgets and never unsees what it has once seen. You, and, you would uh, think they of all people would, uh, would keep that in mind. Yes, yes. It, it's, yeah. it's always ironic when Twitter edits something uh, despite not letting <laughs> the users edit things. Uh, so a subscription service I think is really interesting. Um, I, I'm a big fan of things like email tax, where you pay a penny to send an email, and that would, uh, I think, limit the amount of emails that we get tremendously. And I, I wonder if uh, even Twitter as its core service were to ever transition to a subscription service, if that would cut down the number of fake accounts and, and other things like that, that... Uh, are on the, the service. Obviously, I think Twitter views themselves as a platform for democracy and free speech. And so I don't know that we'll ever see them move in that direction, but you can imagine that uh, they might add features even to the core service that um, become available through subscription or through an, an additional fee. I, I think it's a really fascinating possibility. And uh, of course, the stock was up uh, when the uh, when the listing was uh, discovered 8%. I'm sure a lot of that uh, is due to a phenomenon we've discussed uh, many times, uh, not, not too recently, but we talked about it a lot last year when we talked about Facebook and the idea of revenue uh, diversification. Uh, Twitter historically has been far behind Facebook in terms of ad revenue, so in some ways they would be even more motivated to uh, you know, try to try to launch something like this, and um, uh, there there are, I think, a, a lot of different ways they could go with it. Uh, I think that uh, while you know putting some kind of universal membership fee uh, in place would would probably be uh, you know a tough uh, uh, you know a tough move uh, in in terms of the number of people who would who would flee, uh, particularly as we see. Uh, 
you know, upstarts like this, uh, is it Parlay, I believe, this new uh, right-wing uh, focused uh, social, social network? Um, well, it's not focused on uh, conservatives, but uh, a lot of conservatives have, uh, have moved there. Um, the, uh, but, but, you know, as, as a longtime user of Twitter, uh, I have had uh, many frustrations with the service uh, in terms of uh, there just being so, uh, so much quality content there uh, by people I, I would love to follow and yet so much noise, right? Um, and I think Twitter has tried addressing some of that recently with, for example, following topics. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I would be inclined to, uh, you know, consider paying if, if I could get um, you know, some really good, useful filtering, seeing all the tweets I want to see in a time-efficient manner. Uh, another route they could go is just uh, offering a paid version of some kind of power user program or some kind of commercial uh, program where, you know, for a certain monthly fee, I get a certain number of, say, promoted tweets uh, per month, you know, and I could completely justify that if I'm, say, a small business and I'm looking to amplify uh, my message on Twitter, for example. Roz, what would you pay for an edit button? That seems to be like... Uh, oh, uh, a king's ransom, <laughs> um, you know, or, or at least a buck a month. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it is interesting to see, uh, you know, I think the problem that Twitter has is that they have this core group of users that are so adamant about what the service looks like, how it it behaves, and don't change anything at <laughs> all. It, it seems like uh, the, the core users have a very hard time adjusting emotionally to any changes to the, uh, to the service. It, it could be that Twitter has some really interesting ideas and they just don't feel like they can roll them out without getting uh, rebuked by their users. And so they're looking at Maybe a, maybe a separate service, maybe an, an add-on service to uh, Twitter, and, and then that allows people to self-select. They can uh, subscribe or not subscribe. And, and I think it's just been fascinating to contrast Twitter and Facebook uh, over the past few months in that uh, Twitter was long criticized for saying, oh, we're thinking about changes, we're working on changes, and years went by and you know nothing happened, and uh, there was a lot of um, uh, vitriol uh, aimed at, uh, uh, at, um, at, at, at Jack Dorsey. Uh, and yet, uh, over the past few months, they've rolled out a lot of things. You know, they rolled out the ability to uh, constrain replies to tweets. They've rolled out the, these labeling uh, measures uh, for things that may be objectionable. Uh, I mentioned the subject-driven hashtags. So, so, you know, and, and even a few months ago, was it last year, I think, the move to 256 characters up from, uh, you know, the iconic uh, 140. Uh, so I, I agree with you, Sean. You know, I think that uh, there, there is a lot of loyalty and, um, and you know, people don't want to see it become, uh, you know, too, uh, stray too far from its original look and feel. Uh, but I would say overall that that the moves that they have made have been positive, and they have uh, enhanced the the experience for the overwhelming majority of users. Meanwhile, uh, Facebook, 
you know, continues to uh, hit uh, a, a lot of headwinds um, in terms of its approach and its, uh, its policies of uh, trying to maintain this uh, unfiltered experience. Uh, news this week uh, about a civil rights uh, task force kind of that they commissioned to, to audit the service that, um, uh, you know, came up with, um, found some signs of progress, but, but overwhelmingly uh, disappointed in, in terms of the moves that, that Facebook has made. Uh, the continuance of the boycott uh, that many big brands are uh, engaging in with, with Facebook and uh, Zuckerberg allegedly saying that, oh, you know, they'll be back. <laughs> they'll be back soon enough. You know, they, they always come back. But you know these these are uh, a lot of these guys are are huge uh, brands, huge TV advertisers, some of the biggest CPG companies in the world, Unilever, Verizon, um, Best Buy. Uh, you know, um, so um, so I, I think that you know this this is probably the the most effective way to try to affect change is is to hit their revenue stream. Yeah. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see how they pivot. I mean, the, the beauty of Facebook is that they do have a, a lot of resources. They have a lot of very smart people. They have the ability to, uh, to adjust things. Uh, some of their other platforms clearly are, are, are stronger than ever. Uh, Instagram uh, is probably stronger than it's ever been and continues to to uh, thrive as it adjusts to its users. So um, and it actually makes sense that they might experiment with some of this stuff on Instagram because, you know, it's a younger user base, uh, probably, uh, you know, less, probably more sensitive to um, a, a lot of these issues than uh, a lot of the core Facebook audience. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, in our final story for this week's episode, we saw preliminary benchmarks on Apple Silicon, and it comes at the same time that uh, NVIDIA's market cap surpasses Intel's market cap, long-held leader in the chip space. Uh, we've seen uh, NVIDIA stock rise something like 60% year-to-date, so they've had a phenomenal run just over the last six months. Um, Ross, your thoughts on the world of chips? Yeah, so a few things. Uh, you know, it's been interesting to see Intel, I'm sorry, uh, interesting to see NVIDIA uh, stock rise uh, uh, literally and, and in the other sense uh, as, um, you know, they, they got out of trying to do smartphones and tablets a couple of years ago and have focused a lot of their attention on uh, on cloud, you know, these basically, they placed bets on uh, sectors that, that have momentum, you know, on, on cloud computing, on AI, on automotive, uh, and so, uh, you know, on, on computer vision. Um, and uh, so in, in some respects, it's, it's been a, a stroke of luck for them that their architecture has just, um, lent itself very well to, to many of these kinds of, uh, of applications. Uh, you know, meanwhile, Intel has, uh, has really struggled 
in terms of uh, keeping up with, with rivals, uh, in terms of uh, power efficiency, uh, even though it, it has some uh, very good uh, AI technology that, that it acquired uh, a couple of years ago um, and, and still seems to be uh, do, doing some, some you know, show, showing a lot of promise. But, but uh, even though PC's uh, sales were up, um, have been up uh, over the quarter as, uh, you know, more uh, consumer, more, more people have, have had to work from home, um, you know, the uh, losing Apple as a customer uh, over the next two years is obviously going to be, uh, you know, tough, a tough break uh, for them. Uh, particularly given that, you know, Apple may not have been their highest volume uh, customer, but uh, they tended to buy a lot of the higher end uh, chipsets. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, what, what Apple is showing uh, in, in putting their own um, silicon and, and the results that were preliminary results that were seen with their own silicon is that essentially, you know, we, we don't need you, you know, we we don't need x86 uh, to to achieve uh, strong performance. In fact, uh, we're seeing such strong performance that we can run uh, virtualized um, Intel optimized applications at uh, more than acceptable speeds. Um, and uh, you know, similarly, uh, Apple, you know, th this development system that that's faring so well is also smoking uh, the Surface Pro X, which is one of the fastest, perhaps the fastest uh, Qualcomm-based uh, PC that, that's been released to date. So, so look, uh, on one hand, you know, this is a desktop system. It's not uh, subject to a lot of the power saving requirements that we will see when Apple finally does put these chips into a, a laptop. Uh, on the other hand, it's uh, it's it's a chip that's like you know a, at least a year old, maybe maybe two generations old, and so one would think that uh, especially when Apple does its first MacBook Pro based on these chips, that they're going to put a, a new iteration, a new generation of uh, of this silicon in there, and uh, you know it it should uh, you know may may well blow blow the doors uh, off. Uh, off uh, other things that are out there. Now, I, I wrote for ZDNet uh, this this week uh, that uh, the success of these products has to do with a lot more than speed. Uh, and we, we talked uh, recently about, you know, for example, does Apple use its savings from not paying Intel to try to come down in price, uh, you know, which I, I think could be a lot more disruptive. Uh, but, uh, you know, and who knows what the compatibility is going to look like? Um, you know, obviously, if it, nothing, not everything will be there on day one. That's why Apple has committed to a two-year transition. Uh, but it's 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 off to a promising start. And uh, you know, one would think that that Qualcomm is is also going to continue to get faster. It, it now has some some strong competition, uh, even among uh, ARM processors if not direct competition. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're going to work on revving up their performance as well. So. It will be interesting to see if they're able to do that being, uh, you know, so large and then kind of entrenched in their processes. But yes, the co competition is clearly up and running. And, you know, you've got a, a new generation of users as well. So I, 
I look at my uh, youngest son who just built a PC or is in the process of building a PC. And he, uh, you know, so his review system is what other YouTubers are saying and, and what he sees from other streamers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said he really wanted to buy an Intel chipset, but it was just too expensive. And so he went with uh, something from AMD, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, and he, and he was looking for something that he could stream with and that, you know, would give him the gaming experience that he's wanting. So it's it just interesting to see um, the kind of competition coming from all sides and uh, you, you see that Apple obviously doing very well with their own proprietary technology. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Sean. I, I hadn't even considered their uh, more, more traditional rival, uh, AMD, which is uh, uh, winning many accolades for its, um, uh, it, its high-end Threadripper uh, architecture, particularly among uh, enthusiasts, gamers, and, um, you know, it, it's very likely that we're going to start to see more of that architecture uh, in, in servers uh, and, and cloud-driven computing as well. So a story we'll continue to follow. Uh, probably a good place to wrap up this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Duberback with Avrio Institute, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Duberback. And uh, I'm Ross Rubin, and even if you're not a paying Twitter user, uh, you can find me there at Ross Rubin. But you won't be able to edit anything quite <laughs> yet. Still. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week for another episode of Techspansive. <laughs>